welcome to Two Girls and a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm Drea, and I like to do weird shit on vacation. And I'm Jules, and I've been known to pack wine in my suitcase for fear that I won't find any good wine where I'm going. True story. That's legit, though. That's like a pro tip. I mean, just saying. I have those little wineskin bubble bags. Yeah, they exist for protect. a reason. Yeah. They mm-hmm. go two ways. It's true. All right, well, to kick us off, Let's start with our reoccurring segment, Cheers and Jeers. Jules, what are you cheersing and jeersing this week? Uh, Today, I am cheersing to my mother-in-law, Nancy. I know people are probably shocked about that because most people are like, oh, do you get along with your mother-in-law? Love my mother-in-law. So she's been visiting for just about a week. She's here for another few days, but she's been the best house guest and is totally spoiling the dog circus that is my house with the three dogs um, to the nth degree, and I'm totally here for it, and she's just uh, been awesome. So cheers to Nancy. Cheers, Nancy. Cheers, Nancy. Cheers uh, to getting older. So I have plantar fasciitis, Fun. which is fucking awful. And um, this week I had surgery to remove skin cancer from my fucking face. <laughs> so, yeah, I need a drink. <laughs> really been going through. You know, actually, the two girls of two girls at a grape have really been going through it. <laughs> We've been going through it. I'm like top to bottom falling apart. So yeah. How about you, Drea? What are you cheersing and jeersing this week? Uh, so my cheers is all about life's simple pleasures. So cheers to Pozole. Literally brought me back from the dead. Love some pozole. <laughs> Love some pozole. And not just because it was the only thing I could really taste. <laughs> um, but also, it's nurturing. It's comforting. It's, it is. It's soulful. So, yeah. It's a soup and a stew all in one. Exactly. And, yeah, it's perfect. Uh, and my jeers, where do I start? <laughs> so many jeers. <laughs> Pick one. Episode. Pick one. I need to. So, one... Um, can't believe we're still doing this, but jeers to the fucking COVID because that bitch Rona finally got me. And let me tell you, she's not fucking around. No. She's not fucking around. To add insult to injury, when I was down for the count, my dog circus of one was viciously attacked by some <gasps> smushy-faced French fucking bulldogs. Stupid French bulldogs. Stupid Frenchies. Assholes. <laughs> so, uh yeah, so it's been a real it's been a real challenging uh couple of weeks for the two girls, the two girls. and their grapes. Yeah. And there's been very little wine consumption, which is very little. Really the big fucking problem here. It's really kind of a sad state of affairs over here, but we are back on the horse. We are ready and we we're are ready. stocked. And Got we this. are ready for these vacation episodes. Woohoo. It's time for Shawinigans, one of my favorite parts of our episodes. And this week, we are talking a little bit about our best and worst vacations for wine drinking. So let's start with worst. Drea, worst wine vacation. Go. Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh, fuck. (laughs) So, okay, disclaimer. Las Vegas requires hard alcohol. No, I'm it really sorry. does. It just <laughs> shots of tequila and that's done. But every vacation I take is a wine vacation. 
because as we as we shall as, as, find out. Yes, because I always want to drink wine when I'm on vacation or and, just whatever. I mean, I always want to drink There's wine. That. Yeah. So, but it's it's particularly important when I'm on vacation. And Vegas, you know, I'm not opposed to Vegas. I'm really not. There's a time and a place for it. I used to go all the time. But it's it is not I like sort of the seedy, campy Vegas. Like, give me a $2 shrimp cocktail Ugh. and a free drink. And, and food poisoning? And some bullshit. Where, but now, like, Vegas is fancy as fuck, right? Which it's also, ex- also known as expensive as fuck. Well, so that's what I was getting at. Okay. Like, everything is fucking expensive She's like, there. let me talk. <laughs> you want a good dinner? Fucking expensive. $250. You, you want, want a drink? $20. Oh, yeah. You want a real you want a bottle of water? That's $10. <laughs> oh, I was going to say 18 <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> you want to... I'm apparently going to the budget <laughs> Vegas hotel. We, we stay at Encore, by the way. But, it, you know, it's just so pricey now. And the last time I went to Vegas, I actually did most stuff. Most of the stuff I did was off the strip mm-hmm. because I was like, fuck this place. Yeah. I've had enough of this. And for a wine drinker, you know, you it takes a lot of effort to go and find places that you're like, all right, I can do this. I, I recently met um, a couple at a Star Wars convention. Nerd alert. <laughs> and they were from Vegas, and they told me about a super rad natural wine bar in the Arts District. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, the next time I go, I'll hit that up. But, like... I don't want to pay fucking $18 for a glass of rosé by the pool. But I want rosé by the pool. It's it's a unwinnable situation. It is. Yeah. So that's my... Let's stick to Palm Springs. My least favorite. All right. What was your worst wine vacation? I think worst wine vacation, and this has been corroborated by other friends that have traveled to this area, is honestly, it's the UK. It's <laughs> Great Britain. Like, it's just really hard to find really good wine, even though they have... Italian and Spanish wines, it can just be really hard to find a good bottle of wine that you're like, oh, this is awesome. So if you need proof of that, go back and listen to our Chapel Down episode. <laughs> Which we struggling. Was I mean, it's just underwhelming. We had a rough patch there for a couple of It's <laughs> just a little underwhelming. So the UK is awesome for some gin and tonics. Oh, you're going to yeah, get, I mean, not. the gin... You cannot beat Some the scotch. Gym. Yeah. So that would be my worst wine vacation. And it's really just because the selection is just meh. Well, and I bet sort of post-Brexit it's even worse because of now the import tax. Well, oh, maybe, maybe that's why I couldn't really find too many good wines when I was there. Okay, let's move on to brighter pastures. Let's talk about best wine vacation. Drea, go. So my favorite ever wine vacation was a vacation that I actually took shocking specifically for wine purposes. (laughs) (laughs) And that is uh, Lanzarote, which is one of the islands in the Canary Islands, um, technically Spain, but off the northern coast of Morocco in the Atlantic. And this place is just otherworldly, beautiful incredibly peaceful like it's so good for my soul to be there and the wines are 
fucking outstanding. And it's not the one that's got the black. It's like black. Yes. Volcanic soil. soil. Yeah, we yeah. actually featured um, a wine during season one from there from Bermejos, which is one of my. favorite That was pre Jules, so you know we don't talk about that. We don't talk about Bruno. Sorry, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I just love that place. That place. I've been there multiple times now, and the the way we decided to go there was. Uh, John and I were having dinner for his birthday at Jose Andres' restaurant in Beverly Hills. Um, also, shout out to Jose Andres for World Central Kitchen. Fucking the And best. the work that he's doing in the Ukraine and around the world. Everywhere. To feed people. Really. So. He has fed two more people up. than the Red Cross Love over it. the last five years. Mm-hmm. So he is a personal hero of mine and of yours, I he's think. He's amazing. He's fantastic. And his food is insane every one of his restaurants i've been to has been top notch in terms of service and quality and the wine list and so i happened to be at his restaurant beverly hills for my husband's birthday and they had a bottle of um sparkling of cava uh, it was an aged cava from benedez a very historic catalan producer there and so that's what i ordered and they didn't have it so the song came over and was like, listen, you seem kind of adventurous. I mean, I was also wearing like some crazy shit and had a purse that was in the shape of a T-Rex. So, you know, fucking fair. He's like, you seem like a crazy ass lady. <laughs> he's like, let me suggest some shit yeah, to you. He's like, let me some, suggest some something you may like. And it was a bottle of Bermejos uh, sparkling uh Malvasia, which is, you know, one of the signature grapes that's grown in Lanzarote. And I was like, sure, let's give it a go. And so he brought it over. He poured it. That first sip, I remember, I it just blew my mind. And I looked at John and I said, this place has to be our next vacation. And it was. Mm-hmm. We Three months later, we were on that island and... You know, it's just had such a place in my heart ever since, in my wine-engorged heart ever, <laughs> ever since. <laughs> How about you? What's your favorite wine vacation? You know, Dre always has these amazing stories and anecdotes that go along with, you know, her responses. Mine are usually short and sweet. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to my, my MO here and say best wine vacation, um... I'm, I don't love to pick just one, so I'm actually going to go with two, so maybe not short and sweet, but domestic destination, Los Alamos, California. Uh, I know that we've talked about Casa Dumets on the podcast before, female winemaker. She makes amazing um, wines, especially Grenache. Spoiler alert, future guest. Future guest, Sonia. She she wants to be in the podcast. Sonia, we're coming for you, girl. Welcoming her. <laughs> Uh, but the town of Los Alamos itself is a super cute, it's just a one flagpole town, so you would drive through it and not think anything of it, but they have a Michelin star restaurant, they have two really cool, very different hotels, one is like a motel with the fire pit in the middle, like horseshoe shaped motel, and the other one's kind of up on the hill, it's got a pool and a pool bar, it's a little more shishi, so it kind of depends on your price point. Um, but just, and there's an amazing bakery there called Bob's Bread, where you can get yes. the most delicious chocolate croissants. So that's my domestic destination, is Los Alamos. My international destination is Argentina. We went to Buenos Aires a few years ago, and I fully went there expecting 
Malbec, 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 Malbec. Because I think that's all we know of Argentinian wine here. Oh, future future episode. Yeah. Maybe we do Absolutely. a non-Malbec Argentinian episode. But anyway, I digress. We tried everything but Malbecs when we were there. We, of course, found that. this amazing family-run little wine bar around the corner from our Airbnb that we went to every day. Love that. And they did a tasting for us, because there were three of us, of 18 different wines. So each of us had six different wines, and we just all, like, rotated our glasses, so we got to try 18 different wines. That's amazing. And I think one of them was a Malbec. (laughs) And I was, literally, I was shocked. So... That was one of our be- my best sort of wine tasting vacations because it was super unexpected. Um, tried some amazing wines, came home with some amazing wines from that trip. So, Argentina, put it on the list. Two it's thumbs on up. The list. On Two the thumbs list. up, dude. So there you go, our Schweinigans for this episode. So to kick off this two-part vacation wine series, we are starting with Le Ferme Rouge, a rosé, vintage 2020, um, that that comes out of Morocco. Um, And it's one of the only wines that is imported from Morocco, and who even knew that Morocco had wine? Not this bitch. No. (laughs) The price point for this bottle is about $30. The ABV is 13%. And this selection comes from Drea. So, Drea, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you chose to select this wine for your vacation episode? So, for my vacation episode, I picked this one because this wine was one of the most surprising things that I encountered on my actual vacation to Morocco in 2015. So, in 2015, I was living in Barcelona during my sabbatical And that December, my husband and I decided to go to Morocco for his birthday, live just our full Marrakesh Casablanca fantasy, and we did. But part of that fantasy was us thinking that we were going to have to be dry for two weeks. And for this bitch, who had been living in Barcelona... Drinking every day. Breakfast, (laughs) lunch, and dinner. Every meal. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Wine. Yeah. We were like, whoa. Cava equals water in Spain. Yeah, it's, bre- it's a breakfast <laughs> drink. We were like, oh, it's about to get real, real for us right now. And the first night we were there, we flew into Casablanca, and it was actually John's birthday night, and I took him to Rick's Cafe in oh, Casablanca. Cause as of you do. Course, uh, it was beautiful. The food was fantastic. Full piano bar. Absolutely gorgeous. And lo and fucking behold... They got a wine list. Not only do they have a wine list, but, you know, as, I, as I'm looking at it, obviously you see French wines. There was maybe one or two Spanish wines, a couple of Italian wines, and then a list of local wines. And mm-hmm. it blew my mind because at that time I had no idea that wine was even made in Morocco, let alone that I could get it there um, because they are a, a Muslim country. So that's kicked off this whole wine adventure while we were there. Um, The highlight of which was a private wine tasting that the restaurant manager at this Riyadh we were staying at in Fez did for us. And it was the most remarkable, one of the most remarkable wine experiences I've ever had because this 
so this the manager he was an egyptian muslim from quebec who now lived in morocco because he fell in love hmm. and uh his his staff though is all moroccan you know from there and he ended up sitting with us to do the tasting and had his staff do it because he was trying to develop the wine program there at this Riyadh, mm-hmm. um, which obviously got a lot of European tourists, right? Mm-hmm. And so imagine telling the French and the Spanish and the Italians, like... Anything about wine. Well, also, like, no wine for you on vacation. Yeah. Like, good luck. Yeah. So they're really trying to up their game there in response to the demand in the tourism industry. And um, so he sat there and his staff conducted the tasting, and it was wild. I mean, not only do we have three groups of people there who are speaking French, Arabic, and English all at different points during the tasting, but the wines themselves were just unlike anything I had ever had. Um, they do primarily grow French and now Spanish varietals in Morocco. Oh, she's getting ahead of herself, oh, no, guys. Oh, no, okay. But, but it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> the way they, um, like I had a Chardonnay, for example, that was aged not in oak, but in cedar. I live on Cedar Street. Oh, there you go. <laughs> should we age wine in Elm and Cedar? We what? should age wine in our homes. We Don't should. we do that already? We kind of do that. I mean, sure. We cellar it. We do. <laughs> so that's uh, Drea's kind of crazy wine tasting story. Um, so what I, I'm really curious to know a little bit more about, and this is, you know, you everybody that listens to this podcast Uh, knows that Drea's forte is, you know, the deep dive research, or as my granny would say, research, into uh, this wine. So tell us a little bit about the history of Moroccan wine. Moroccan wine. So the history of of Moroccan wine is uh, pretty fascinating and pretty old, which, like, who knew? Three, not this bitch. And probably not that bitch either. I mean, you could probably deduce that it would be old. I mean, just when you think about how long it's been around as a kingdom, fair as a as a, as a place. We here in the good old U.S. of America, we babies, like we are so young with our adorable little fifty-year-old you know, vine stalks. And you know, even <laughs> Europe is is younger still than uh, you know some of the African countries, right? So absolutely, well, and. You know, Europe had the phylloxera plague, right? Yeah. So their mm-hmm. vine stocks are all pretty young anyways. Um, but the Moroccan wine industry has been pretty consistent and pretty well established for decades at this point. But the history of production there goes back much, much further. So despite this long history, though, uh, Moroccan wines have really started to get a lot more notice due to the influx in foreign investment and the European market, both in terms of wine consumption and in terms of tourism, right? So when you have that many people from uh, Europe going to Morocco for their holidays, the demand is obviously there. Uh, Second, I think that two wine tasting palettes are evolving and always changing. So people are looking for new things to try. I mean, that's certainly like one of my drives when ever I do tasting or I go to a new bottle shop, you know, I want to look at the, I want the weird shit. I want something I've never Mm -hmm. had before. And Moroccan wines are starting to be that, I think, for a lot of um, consumers who are interested in trying something new and exciting. And it's part of the reason why we travel too, right? It's not, it's the experiences, but also when you, 
you know, we're these episodes are sort of wine vacation episodes, so they're obviously focused on somewhere that we would go and we would be drinking wine or the wine would be available. So it's it kind of goes hand in hand with traveling and saying, I really would like to try whatever the local specialty food is or the local wine or the local, uh, you know, alcohol, liquor that they make. Yep. I, I mean, travel global, drink local. Like, that is my rule mm-hmm. of thumb. And in planning the, this episode, Jules and I were talking about how we pick travel destinations. <laughs> Jules is great. She has this whole, like, list of stuff that's important to her. And I was like, wine. Is, <laughs> is it cool there? Like, do they have cool wine? <laughs> so... I, I am a woman of simple pleasures. She's a, a she's got a one track mind, everybody. It's all about the wine. Whereas I'm like, well, is it a beach vacation? Is it a is it a hiking vacation? Don't care. Is, is it... there wine? <laughs> is there wine and is it fair. good? Okay, fair. So in terms of the modern kind of incarnation of Moroccan wine indus- of the Moroccan wine industry that yields like the bottle that we're visiting for this episode. It's around 2001, so pretty new that the first um, Appalachian d'Origine was designated in the Atlas Hills region of Morocco. And that was their first kind of state-sponsored, regulated area, you know, much like the domain of origins or the Appalachians that we talk about in Europe and the United States, respectively. Today, Morocco has seven wine regions. that span all parts of the country, which I think is really worth noting here. And they contain a total of 14 um, AOGs and two kind of controlled Appalachians of origin. So as you can see, just from 2001 in the first uh, Appalachian, it's grown quite a bit as demand has grown. Now, in a shocking turn of events. Shocking. (laughs) It seems that winemaking didn't start with the Romans in Morocco. (gasps) I know. Dun, dun, dun. Finally, we're finally shaking off those fucking Romans. They can't get credit for everything, for God's sakes. (laughs) So while Morocco is a former part of the Roman Empire, the earliest evidence of Moroccan viticulture actually predates the arrival of the Romans. And it has even been suggested that this region is the birthplace of winemaking. Hence why I said, you know, there's parts of Africa or African nations, kingdoms, countries that are significantly older than even European nations. So it's, I don't know that I would have come up with that on my own. Like, oh, yeah, of course Morocco is, is, you know, (laughs) older winemaking than Europe. But when you actually think about it, like, oh, okay, that that kind of tracks. It does make sense, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Again, neither one of us is playing with a full deck these last couple weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Or ever. (laughs) Everything is fascinating this episode. (laughs) Uh, But once again, the history of wine... um, in Morocco is also the history of colonialism in the region because, Always. you know, of course. White people just be fucking everything Fucking up. colonialism. I used to have this joke in grad school that everything was because of colonialism. And you know what? And it's now not a joke. you're kind it's of not a fucking joke. saying that, it, that it's true. I was, I was right. I was right all along. 
but after the fall of Rome came centuries of Islamic dominance in Morocco, which naturally slowed its alcohol production and consumption, right? But interest was rekindled as the French increased their influence from the 1830s on. So in the early 20th century, Europe descended into First World War, and Morocco also became a target for Britain and Germany. So really a free-for-all, right? But the French prevail, and um, in 19, they set up their, their satellite government in 1912 under the provisions of the Treaty of Fez. Spain was also granted some zones of interest in the north and south of the country. And that's where you really start to get a lot of the European influx and influence and that resurgence of demand for wines because that's what colonial forces were drinking um, at the time. So it's under the French that Morocco begins to really develop their wine industry. Like its neighbor Algeria, they had to mass produce wine for French palates. Uh, but wine from Morocco has always been more highly regarded for its quality, even though Algeria has been the leading producer of wine uh, in Africa for quite some time. So when Morocco finally gains full independence in 1956, tens of thousands of hectares of productive vineyards were already in existence. So, you know, wine, grapes are being grown, wine is being made. But with this turn of events, the Moroccan wine industry loses its most significant consumer base, the French, right? If the French aren't there to drink their wines and they're not that interested in exporting it back to France, there's not the same need for production. In addition, just 10 years later in 1966, the EU created tough new import-export legislation when it came to their wines, which I think we've talked about. I think we may have talked about it with our um, Chapel Down episode a little bit too. Yes. <laughs> so as a result, this effectively removes Europe as a market for Moroccan wine. And within 20 years, almost every Moroccan vineyard had either been taken over by the state or simply dug up and replaced with cereal crops, olive trees, things of that nature. Crops that were going to bring in money and income to the country. With these changes, many assume that Morocco's time as a wine nation was over. They was wrong! They was wrong, thank goodness. And it took about 10 years of campaigning by the king, Hassan II, a graduate of the University of Bordeaux, by the way, so French ed educated, to revive overseas interest in Morocco's vineyard potential. And at the time of his death in July of 1999, various large French wine companies were planting new vineyards and had invested in the wine industry in Morocco to revitalize it. Today, Morocco is the second largest producer, wine producer, excuse me, in the Arab world, again, after Algeria. So that is a pattern that has remained pretty consistent over the years. More than 20,000 people are currently employed in the industry in Morocco. And while most of the wine is consumed in the country, there is a renewed interest in exports, primarily to France, which isn't a surprise, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, and also though, the United States. So that's something to keep in mind, too, that, you know, we in the U.S. are a little bit on the forefront of wanting to try these wines. 
for example, at the time of my trip in 2015, I had never seen a Moroccan wine on a U.S. shelf in a U.S. store. And, and by this point, I was already a pretty healthy wino. So when we were there and we were tasting wines, I really wanted to bring back a bottle. And I remember asking that that restaurant director, manager, can I can I buy a bottle and take it home? And he's like, are you going straight to the airport? Well, no, we're going here and here. He's like, no, because if you get caught with this, oh. like that could be a problem for you. And I was like, I don't want a problem. You don't me. want problems in Morocco. Don't want problems in Morocco. So when we flew out of Marrakesh to go back to Barcelona, there was a tiny little duty-free uh, shop in the EU term, like all the terminal where all the flights to Europe were going, mm-hmm. and it had a little wine section. They let you buy one bottle, and they do not give it to you. They take it to On your the plane. plane, yeah, and it is taken. By an armed guard. But that's how all duty-free stuff is. With an is. M16 rifle. They bring it onto the plane for you. Right. But this was like a military dude oh, bringing it onto the plane. Maybe that's how all wine should be delivered. Some serious delivered. contraband. Wow. That's serious business. Yeah. There you go. So note to self, don't be planning on buying wine if you go to Morocco. Don't. To leave the wine skins at home. No. And when I traveled in Morocco, I was not drinking wine. So there's that. All right, Drea, so now that we know a little bit about the history of Moroccan wine, why don't you tell us a little bit more about where these grapes are grown? Sure. And how? The thing that's really fascinating about Morocco, I think, is that the climate for wine there is pretty close to perfect. Like those regions in the Mediterranean and California's Napa Valley that we've talked about pretty extensively on the podcast before. That Drea hates on. I don't hate on it. I hate on the people who It's go a running there. joke here, people. Two girls and a grape. But I do love the Mediterranean, as we all know. This That's, is this, accurate. That is my jam. Accurate. Uh, but you, the the climate is similar enough where you get those you can get those really really warm days, and then those cooler evenings and winters with that sea breeze because there's so much land in Morocco that borders water that it just makes for a a really ideal climate for grape growing. So their premier region um, is the Meknes region, which is midway between the peaks of the Middle Atlas Mountains and the Atlantic coast. And this location enjoys a relatively balanced climate. Uh, It is sheltered from both the Sahara and the ocean. And even here, though, you know, August temperatures can regularly climb to about 104 Fahrenheit, 40 degrees Celsius. So it gets really warm. That's hot. Yeah, I mean. That's hot. (laughs) But it's also really close to what Napa sees now in the summers. I mean, I've been there in Climate change is fake news, Drea. Don't try to bring that shit here to this podcast. (laughs) It's real. (laughs) Join us for the conspiracy hour here at Two Girls in a Grave. Um... And, oh, look at that. It's global warming that's thought to be responsible for the increasingly prevalence of drought, which, Hmm. again, if you look at the Mediterranean, if you look at California, these are all wine-growing regions that are dealing with those issues. Increased temperature, decrease of water. The future of Moroccan viticulture may well be at the mercy, um, not of... Colonialism. (laughs) Surprisingly not this time around. 
but of forces of nature. So if you think about the things that wine growers in Northern California are dealing with, extreme heat, excessive drought, fire danger, those are the same sorts of problems that are now um, really plaguing the Moroccan wine industry. So we're we're all kind of hoping for the best at this point. So really still at the mercy of human beings. Yeah, basically. Just so it's like global colonialism. Yeah. Natural colonialism. Just We're just, the way we treat Mother Earth like shit. I told you everything was about colonialism. <laughs> it all comes back. It really does. Full circle. Uh, so what kind of grapes are traditionally planted in Morocco? So a lot of French and some Spanish varietals. So you see a lot of Carignan, Grenache, and then of course the big boys, Sauvignon, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Syrah. Those were the three I primarily saw on menus when I was there. And I mm-hmm. think part of it is just because, again, that influx of, of French tourists, um, they are still probably one of the largest groups of tourists that visit Morocco. Lots of French people. And then of course you have your white wines um, Claret Blanche, uh, Muscat, and more recently, Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay. And again, those two, you know, those major French varietals are ones that I would say really dominate wine list uh, there in the industry. Now that we know about kind of how these grapes are grown and where they're grown, why don't we talk a little bit about, or, you know, Drea, why don't you tell us <laughs> a little bit more about the varietal that we are drinking today, also known as Le Gris. And, and thank you, Jules, for, for naming that for us, since uh, I have spent the last 10 minutes proving that my French is real bad. She's been butchering the French. <laughs> Not that I did much better, but I said, I'll take this one for you. Thank I you. Got it. Thank you for, for taking the hit. So, uh-huh. uh, Le Gris. Or vingri is what is known as gray wine. Which, which is, sounds gross. Yeah, it doesn't sound appetizing at all. No. It sounds like you're drinking like dishwater with, I don't know, wood grain alcohol. It, just, it doesn't, doesn't sound, sound appealing at all. Like gray food. You wouldn't, you, you wouldn't use that as a, as a good description for something. I don't know. What about like in Disney's Beauty and the Beast? Try the gray stuff. It's delicious. Nope. Don't, don't believe you. me? Ask the dishes. No? Okay, never no. mind. All right, well. Continue on, I'm please. Dork, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, vingri is a term that is often used for rosé wine, just like the words blush or pink can be used. Way better words. I mean, I guess. The French are supposed to be good at this stuff. They're supposed to be, you know, like romantic and everything is supposed gray to be Gray wine eloquent. doesn't sound sexy. Gray wine does not sound sexy. <laughs> it does not make me want to do bad things. Well, it traditionally refers to wine <laughs> that is made from red grapes, but with white winemaking practices. Now, again, how you get gray as a descriptor for that, I really don't know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the French also drink a lot. Yeah, they may have been a, so little, I, a little toasted. I'm, I'm willing to give them this, you know what I mean? Uh, so instead of fermenting grapes with their skins, which would extract the color, right, of the red grape, like it's the skins that give wine the coloring, uh, the wine is just made from the juice, which will be mostly clear, but with the slightest pink tinge. And the wine that we are drinking today, and we'll have to do a a close-up photo on the Instagram, isn't a traditional pink. 
Don't give me that look. I feel like it kind of is, though. But anyway, we'll get to that when we do our... Okay, we'll, ba- we'll battle Royale it out later then. We'll see who wins this one. Okay, well, probably you. I've given up hope already. <laughs> <laughs> Another reason why this type of wine is sometimes referred to as Vingri or gray wine is because wine, some winemakers, this is not the case with this bottle, I want to be very clear, but some winemakers may want to make a rosé but also may want to make a red wine. So what they do is they drain off the first bit of juice to concentrate flavors and color. So the rosé becomes almost like this byproduct a bit. And now it is sounding gross. Like now it is sounding like dirty (laughs) water. I didn't make it better. I made it worse. Uh, But that's where the name comes from. And, and it refers to the color and the process. So all you need to remember for the purposes of this is it is wine made from red grapes using white winemaking processes. So there's no skin contact. There's no maceration. None of that. Got it. Excellent. So uh, I have said a lot of things. She has. Mostly about colonialism and... Um, <laughs> how I can't speak French very well. So why don't you lighten the mood a little bit and save me from being a royal jackass in our remaining time here and and hit us with some fun facts. Okay, fun facts with Jules. Morocco produces 40 million bottles of wine, of which 5% are exported. So if you can get your hands on a bottle of Moroccan wine, consider yourself lucky and among the 1%, perhaps. We're, <laughs> we're, we're part of the 1%. Are we now part of the 1%? We are. Oh, my God. We absolutely are. We made it. Uh, Colonialism. Fun... Oh, God. <laughs> Another fact um, that I thought was kind of interesting, because when you think of Morocco as a Muslim country, typically, you know, alcohol is prohibited. Um, but Moroccan law does not prohibit the production of beer and alcohol, but it does prohibit the sale to Muslim customers. So wine can be purchased in supermarkets and some restaurants, um, but really it's those sort of establishments that cater to tourists and visitors. Um, Another fun fact is that about 75% of the wines made in Morocco are red, predominantly predominantly Rhone varietals like Syrah, Grenache, and Carignan, as well as Cabernet Sauvignon and the often maligned Merlot. Otherwise known as Merlot. Malarkey. (laughs) (laughs) And final fun fact. Le Ferme Rouge, our uh, producer for today, like many European wines, also makes an olive oil, which I would love to get my hands on. Yeah, that would be nice. Mm -hmm. I love a good olive oil. Yeah. Oh, the olive oils there are phenomenal, too. I mean, the olive trees grow everywhere, and they're so tasty. So there are your fun facts about Moroccan wine. Now that we've given you umpteen million facts and bullet points about Moroccan wine, the history, how the grapes are grown, et cetera, et cetera. Colonialism. Let's do a little bit more of a deep dive into the specific region that our wine today comes from, and then a little bit more about La Ferme Rouge as a winemaker. Excellent. So our wine today from La Ferme Rouge 
comes from the Zaire region, which is located about 45 kilometers from the ocean and is bordered in the west by valleys and in the south by the Middle Atlas foothills. So again, we're looking at that Middle Atlas region, which is the predominant growing region in Morocco. And this particular bottle is really getting a lot of the benefits from that region. So this position, because it's situated between these hills and these valleys, uh, it really gets a lot of ocean wind from the Atlantic and creates a very nice temperature for the vines to really thrive. So again, you're getting that cycle of heating and cooling that oftentimes yield really mature, robust grapes because it, that climate allows the sugars to really develop uh, before harvest. The soil in this region is also super rich and is comprised of sand, red clay, shale, and limestone, which are all some pretty heavy hitters. You know, you usually see, see soils that are either clay-based or kind of your more um, sandy, rocky, like sand and limestone, more porous soils versus the dense ones that are clay. But what's interesting here is this has both. So you're getting a real dynamic duo that is really going to add to the minerality and the texture of the wines that they produce. In terms of... Also, it's old. And it's old. The soil? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's old as dirt. Like us. But I'm Okay. So let's talk about Le Ferme Rouge. Le Ferme Rouge. The winery and a little bit about the winemaker. Awesome. So the history of this this winery is actually super cool because it really mirrors that of Morocco's recent wine history. Uh, the estate was originally established in 1908. So right before the Treaty of Fez and the, the French occupation, the cellar was built in 1933 and that's when the first vintage was produced. And then from the time of independence in 1956 and through the 1970s, the estate served mainly as a grape producer and ceased making wine on site. Hmm. So they weren't really doing the winemaking. They were just doing grape growing um, and selling it for different purposes. Then in the 1990s, new owners began to revive the soil and prepare it for new possibilities and business ventures. And the focus was really on getting... Um, investors to supply the capital that would be needed to get this winery back into production. And it's not until 2001 that they started to rehabilitate the property. Um, and by 2009, they had restored the cellar and began producing wine again. So it was really a long journey uh, to get this very historic cellar back to its glory days. And of course, now, you know, they're one of the leading exporters from Morocco and certainly the wine that, you know, when I am looking for a Moroccan wine that, I, that I'm able to find. In terms of production style, Le Ferme Rouge is really in alignment with things that we value here on the podcast. So all of their grapes are hand harvested. They are pressed rather than crushed. Uh, one of the things that I nerd out on is that they are fermented in concrete vats. I'm just, I'm into that. I'm into that hardcore, as mm -hmm. many of you know. And it probably adds to the minerality of the yeah. wine, too. Well, and it, it also, you know, one of the things I like about concrete is it really 
It's sturdy. It's... <laughs> She's sturdy. It's a sturdy rosa. It's a sturdy gray I'm wine. here to give you all of this super insightful information, people. That's my job. sturdy, structured wine. No. You're welcome. <laughs> no, it, it really lets the grape do its thing and shine. Uh, you're not masking it with, you know, the runoff from a different wood and or, or from additive. It's just all about the grape and what the grape is yielding. Uh, so I'm into that. And their winemaking philosophy that they talk about on their website, I think, is really um, very much indicative of the type of wines that both Jules and I like to drink. And they say, alcoholic wines. Yes. <laughs> Heavily alcoholic wines. I am just coming up with all the zingers today, people. You are welcome. I think she's on pain meds, everybody. <laughs> she might be on some opioids. Without healthy living soil, there is no sustainable viticulture and much less local terroir wines. And so since production has started and even since rehabilitation has started on the property they've really been dedicated to treating the vineyard as an ecosystem and making sure that it's going to be around yielding really beautiful wines for some time Now that we've really discussed all the ins and outs of the Moroccan wine industry. Now you know the entire history of Morocco wine, grapes, their soil composition. Colonialism. You have a lot of information. You're welcome. Let's get to the getting. <laughs> Let's start our tasting segment. And as always, we like to talk about color. Uh, and we've sort of previewed our battle royale that we're having so Jules, talk to me about your perception of the color of this wine. I'm going to eat my words a little bit from earlier. Oh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Listen, don't discourage me from trying to be honest about things. So initially, I was like, oh, no, that's totally pink rosé. Or, you know, a pink color. Like a typical rosé color. But when you look at it a little more, it almost has a gold tinge to it. So it's almost like a rose gold color. It's not gray. No, it's not gray. It's not dishwater gray. So for those of you wanting me to say that it's gray, I'm not going to say that. But it definitely has a, almost a metallic color to it. So for me, this is a rose gold. Yeah, it definitely has a it's golden pretty. hue. Um, more on like the peach end of a pink, mm, I think. I would agree. Uh, then the a true pink so we and a little orangey yeah a little little orange kind of an an orange wine almost it's if it's like if an orange wine had a rosé baby that made no sense sure but yeah okay well we invented a new thing here but it's you know we talked about this a couple episodes ago i think on our black girl magic episode where we drank that rosé which was a really true cotton candy colored pink and and this one is you know completely the opposite of that i think Mm -hmm. um and it doesn't you know it's and it's it's very light too it doesn't have like that dark deep tone and again because and it's not coating the glass either 
Right, this is, remember, just from the juice. There's absolutely no skin contact that really mm. happens here. Yeah. Okay. What about, uh, what are you smelling? As they say, on the nose. In the industry. <laughs> We're such dorks. The nose is really interesting to me because I get some... I definitely get some tropical notes that I would associate with, uh, like, a Chardonnay. So a little bit mm. of, like, papaya, pineapple. But there's also a heavy dose of, um, like, herbaceousness to this as well, I think. You know, I'm getting, like, thyme, a little bit of lemongrass. Wow. COVID has fucked up her senses. The fuck you say? <laughs> <laughs> goddamn delta variant because i am getting like stone fruit so i'm legitimately like getting peach. like I, pe like i'm definitely getting peach in this see i don't get the sweetness that a peach would would reference for me yeah i can and this is the beauty of the individual palette palette and like what you are sort of equating what you're tasting what you're smelling what you're seeing so, I could I could definitely get some underripe nectarine here. I mean, let's face it, y'all. We're all gonna go with what Drea says because she's the smarter of the two. But that is not. I'm true. definitely not getting any kind of herbaceousness out of this. Those are also things I'm yeah. just like really attuned to as well in okay. wines. Like yeah. I, I like those. Like, and she also I'm, is recovering from COVID. I ain't have Delta. Stop trying to colonize me. <laughs> God, could she say it anymore in this episode? No. Well, wait, maybe. Okay, what are we tasting? Are you tasting thyme? Are you tasting pineapple, guava, papaya? Am no. I tasting peach? Are you tasting peach? No. Yeah, no. I'm not. Not tasting any of that shit. Um, you know what I'm tasting a little bit more, though? It like almost like a jasmine or honeysuckle. Yeah. It's that it's sweet, but not that, not your what you would normally think of as sweet in terms of like sugary, but sweet floral. Floral. Yeah. Thank oh, you. You're welcome. Couldn't get there. Really. Could not get there. You're gonna fuck with my senses now. Uh, a little, yeah, violet, jasmine. Certainly, there. I also get some nice citrus too, like mm -hmm. kind of like a ruby grapefruit. Almost. It is fresh, you guys. Yeah. This is really, really good, and it's got nice acid, really good acidity. Now I'm really pissed that I did not buy more than one bottle of this. They only had one. That's true. I bought the last bottle at well, this awesome little wine bar called the Wine Finch. Shout out to our people at the Wine Finch in Idlewild. And they like us now, so they can probably get more for us. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Hi, Wine Finch. Hi, Wine Finch. Hey, girl. <laughs> <laughs> we love the Moroccan rosé. Okay. Um, yeah, no, like, real, like, there's such a good punch to it. Like, this is a great I love it. summer wine. It hits you with that mm -hmm. minerality. There's almost, like, a little, like, sea salt to the finish, too, that makes mm. your tongue, like, ding, ding, ding. Okay. To each their own. Let's get to our pairings where we talk about what we would drink this wine with food-wise, uh, where situationally, and what's how we are being entertained. And in true Jules fashion, I kind of 
mix them all up, but I'm going to try to kind of parse them out. So food for me, uh, when I traveled in Morocco many, many years ago, I was in Marrakesh and there was a night market and they had all these amazing food stalls. And the thing that kind of came to mind for me was this chickpea stew that they had that was just delicious and light. I know it's it seems when I say chickpea stew or even the word stew that it would be heavy, but it was light and flavorful and fresh and um, had all these amazing spices in it. So I think it would go really well with this rosé because I think this rosé, even though it's light, it has good body so it could hold up to something like that. Absolutely. And then yeah. I'd also throw in a kebab, a meat kebab. I mean, why not? For that. Because it was a night market food stall and you could literally get whatever the fuck you wanted. So Just walk around with a meat stick? Literally. Yes. So I also went with a Moroccan food theme uh, and definitely thought about the things I ate there. This was by far one of my favorite food vacations. Like, the food is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, we all recall this bitch loves a salad. She loves I fucking a salad. Love a salad. And nothing, I mean nothing, can compare to the spread that is the Moroccan salad. Mm-hmm. And for those of you who full of fresh herbs and ugh, it's so good. Well, and for those of you who are unfamiliar, a Moroccan salad isn't like you went to fucking tender greens and there's some nice shit on a mm-hmm. plate. It is literally like twenty to thirty little tiny plates with all these different little mini salads that you then put on your big plate to form your most amazing salad. And one of the things on that, in that spread that I remember was chilled carrots with rose water and honey. Hmm. And they were insane. There's a, a dish at a Spanish restaurant in Sevilla that's similar that I also love. Uh, and it's just one of those things that's always stuck with me and that I've tried to reproduce here at home but can never quite get it right. Never. Uh, the My protein that I would pair with this, because I'm just a bitch like that, is a pigeon pastilla. <laughs> my <see>. eyes just <laughs> rolled so far in the back of my fucking head. Okay, go. It's squab. It is a common... They are literally the rats of the sky. It was Hence delicious. the eye roll. It was delicious. I mean, to be <laughs> fair, we were at a, we were eating they at this restaurant and they had a chicken one for you know, Los Gringos, and then the pigeon. And I was like, hit me with the pigeon. And poor John Myerson was like, absolutely not. I'll get take away, the chicken. Get away from me. One of the many times he has been disappointed slash disgusted by things that I have consumed on vacation. Fair. Uh, let's talk about situational, um, and, uh, that didn't make any sense. Um, let's talk about the situation that you find yourself in when you're drinking this delicious rosé. So here's an interesting thing about this particular bottle and producer. Uh, I happen to be in Palm Springs, staying at the Sands and Indian Wells, And their whole aesthetic at this hotel is kind of mid-century Moroccan, Mm -hmm. which I'm obsessed with. They have a delightful restaurant there, and we were having dinner, and this bottle was on their wine list. And it was the 
perfect wine to have in Palm Springs in the summer in this beautiful space um, with Mediterranean and Northern African inspired cuisine. And it, it was just, it was lovely. I drank this wine the entire time where I was there. It's one of those resorts where like, you go and there you stay. You never leave. Yeah. You, no. There's no reason to. No, there you, would be no reason to. And uh, it was delightful. So I would love to recreate that situation for myself very in the very near future. I would sign up for that trip. Let's do it. How about you? I see myself at this pretty small hotel in just outside of Todos Santos, which is about an hour outside of Cabo in Mexico. And this hotel is called the San Cristobal, and it's very influenced by Southern Spain. So, you know, Morocco, southern Spain, you can I was literally... Like, which is very influenced you by literally, Africa. Yeah, you yeah. literally just take a ferry to. So I could definitely see myself sitting poolside with, you know, this bottle and a bucket of ice and just having myself a good old time and not sharing a single glass with anyone else. What about me? Nope. You can wow. get your own bottle. Fine. Get my own bottle. You can get your own bottle. Get my own lounge chair. Sorry. <laughs> now you all know how selfish I am. I'm a greedy bitch. All right. I am afraid to ask about your entertainment. First disclaimer, I had nothing to do with this. My entertainment comes purely from memories of my travels in Morocco. I Slash want... colonialism. <laughs> She's just never giving up. Never. Sitting at a cafe on the sidewalk in Morocco... And dude comes by with the snake. He's a snake charmer. You know, he's doing snaky things. I'm That's into what it. she said. I'm into it. I'm into it. It's it's entertaining. So I'm being entertained by a snake charmer. Sorry. There, I said it. <laughs> I said what I said. Now Drea's going to fire me as her co-host. <laughs> On the next one girl in a grave. <laughs> <laughs> I could also be riding a camel. Oh my god! Because I've done that what a few the times. Is sex in the city. <laughs> I have done that a few times, and it's awesome and terrifying at the same time. I, I'm gonna go with terrifying. The way that they come up and down is terrifying, but riding it in itself is not terrifying. So well, it's this, an experience. This is the, here's the difference between Jules and I. She rode a camel. When I was in Morocco, I was like, "Where can I eat camel?" <laughs> <laughs> But I'm the bad one here. <laughs> I mean, it, they eat it there. It's a delicacy. But it's a mode of transport. Yeah, but it's A very also, important mode of transport. It's also a food group. Okay. Moving so, on. What's your entertainment? Uh, so I love an old movie. I just love a, a Turner classic I film. I eat Casablanca. I, hello. I wasn't going to go with that one. But she already talked about oh, that. Oh, I, so. I did talk about you that. Did. That was true. Um I really love the Hitchcock film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. It's one of his early works, and it takes place in French-occupied Morocco. Uh, and it's, you know, a very classic, like, Hitchcockian whodunit psychological thriller. And it's just like a... I know that doesn't sound fun, but it is a fun movie. Like, I love a Hitchcock movie. Oh, Hitchcock great. movies are great. So I want to make some, like, yummy, spicy popcorn... I want a bottle. Always of with this. the popcorn. Always with the popcorn. I want a bottle of this, and yeah, I just want to live my full cinema fantasy. I want to wear a caftan. 
Oh, we can make that happen. <laughs> we should make that Thank happen. Thank you, Jennifer Grace. <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer Grace. So, for those of you that have been enticed by this episode to perhaps As try this wine or maybe search for uh, another Moroccan wine, Drea, where do you... Th- do you suggest people look for this wine? So as we mentioned, I found this wine at a, you know, independent local wine bar in Idlewild, California, which is a super cool mountain town that I go to quite frequently. Um, and it's called the Wine Finch. So they always have some really interesting wines. But if you obviously can't um, visit Idlewild or I don't know if they ship, they probably do ship. But where else could we potentially look for some Moroccan wines? It really is going to be these small, independent wine shops where you're going to find this type of wine. And I cannot advocate enough for WineSearcher.com. They don't sponsor us. No they one, should. I know. No one's sending us free and stuff total or wine. whatever. Uh, but they're fantastic because what it, what it does, what the website does is you put in what you're looking for. And it can be based on anything from a specific wine and even vintage to just a country. You're looking for a Moroccan Mm -hmm. wine. Or the varietal. Right, or or the varietal or the region. Whatever the case may be, there's lots of different search options. You can set your geographical parameters um, based on where you are, and they they are global, so there are global sellers listed there. And then, you know, it'll even tell you when it pops up, like... This place has it. You can buy it by the bottle. You can buy it by the case. Mm-hmm. There's no minimum for your order. They ship or they don't ship. So it's a it's a great resource if you're looking for some of these more exotic bottles um, to add to your collection. Great. So our next episode is going to finish our vacation arc, and that will feature Jules' pick. And do you want to tell us a little preview of your bottle? The only thing I will say is that it is an Italian wine. Le Grazie. Did I get that right at least? It's just Grazie. Oh, wow. Not Le Grazie. Grazie. Okay. Ciao. You know what? It's Friday. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us about your favorite winding vacations. Uh, On our Instagram, we're featuring, featuring all sorts of wine vacation uh wish list trips here so tell us about yours follow us on instagram at two girls in a great pod t-w-o girls in a great pod and drop into those comments or dms or you can always email us at two girls in a great pod again t-w-o girls in a great pod at gmail.com and until next time salute salute